Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen DiTrolio Coakley, and today we bring to you a conversation between Elizabeth Tamez Mendez, Matilde Moros, and Daniel Ramirez about leadership development in local congregations. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. Thank you for joining us for this Open Plaza podcast session. Today we will explore aspects of leadership development among youth. To discuss this topic, we have gathered the following team of leaders. And if you want to introduce yourselves. Yes. Uh, hola. Dan Ramirez, Associate Professor of American Religious History at Claremont Graduate University in California. And I'm Matilde Moros. I'm Assistant Professor of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies in Richmond, Virginia. And I'm Elizabeth Tamez Mendez, and the Executive Director for New Generation 3. So today we just want to start capturing some of our early uh, recollections from childhood. In my work among pastors and lay leaders, I'm often asked about how can we develop and multiply leaders for the church. And what I point out is that what we know from research is that leadership development, it really is conceived as a lifelong process. And it, re and it starts from childhood, and it grows through practicing leadership tasks, so it has to be hands-on. This in contrast to maybe like the typical way of conceiving leadership development, which is a matter of skills that can be acquired through training sessions or conferences or a course in adulthood. The younger a person begins their opportunities to exercise leadership, the higher the likelihood that this person will develop their leadership skills and continue exercising leadership in adulthood. And that's why I wanted us to today, I know that the three of us have this in common, that we started early on, some of our experiences in, in our congregational context, and I wanted then today to capture some of our stories and testimonials so that we can share with other leaders some ideas as to how they can translate this concept in, into their practice and their congregations. So Matilde, what are some of the things you remember from growing up? The first memories I have of church are my first memories, because I was born into a community of pastors. My parents were both pastors. And so I remember being in church all the time. So that would be the first thing. Because I was there so often, I think part of what taught me to be a leader was watching people model what that looks like. And also the sort of comfort level. This was in Latin America, I was in Venezuela. Um, the comfort level that is afforded to people to all of a sudden just be asked, could you come up and do the prayer of such and such? And people just, they don't, they don't get anxious about speaking in public, et cetera, because they've been learning to do this from early mm -hmm. childhood. So even the children are asked to come and pray or be part of a, uh, children's choir without a lot of prep time and I think that is learned through modeling mm. so prayers and then into into early uh, adolescence then young people are expected to have a different level of maturity with regard to church so if you have a particular talent and you you sing well then you might be asked to come and sing if you read well you might be asked to come read scripture um, and as early as 14 then, by then I had just moved to the U.S., um, I was asked to preach 
and represent my youth uh, group. And the youth group by then was all U.S. And they were very nervous with the idea. And I was like, no, of course I'll preach. <laughs> like it wasn't something so scary. Um, and I didn't have any training, but I had heard it so often. And I had, you know, I knew that I had to have an important point and, you know, be about scripture as well. So I think the modeling is the first experience I have. And who, who asked you if you would do, do like, bring some sermon or preaching? Who, who approached you with at, this idea? At this point, it was uh, a big U.S. church, and so they had a youth minister. Oh, and okay. they had um, Youth Sunday, and so I guess this is something that they do. Mm-hmm. But I was new to that church, and I was comfortable. Was it a Latino church? Or a it church? was not a Latino church. <coughs> I was the only Latinx member of the youth group at this point because I'm Presbyterian and the Presbyterian church tends to be 90 something percent um, Anglo Mm -hmm. but it happened to be right in the year that Oscar Romero was assassinated Mm -hmm. and I was very (coughs) hyper aware of how important um, social issues were to to me Um, because in Venezuela, my father had been a, not only a pastor and a professor, but a human rights leader. Oh. Yeah. And so I was, I was aware of what this meant, and I was just ready to, to speak from the pulpit about this. Do you, do you know of uh, anything in particular that happened as to why this youth leader would decide like, to approach you and ask you to do this? The youth leader approached the group. Oh, okay. And the group was very much afraid. And, and, and I was, I, I had something to speak about. Oh, okay. I felt okay. a call, but I think I had been in a space where that was modeled. Yes. So yes. I wasn't afraid to, to volunteer. To do it. Great. How about you, Dan? What do you remember? Well, it was a quite different setting from Matthew's, um, but I think some of the same dynamics were at play. So my childhood was spent in a barrio church in a small Southern California town, Corona, and it was an apostolic Pentecostal. And the important thing to remember about the apostolic churches is that they have been entirely autonomous and Latino-led since the Azusa Street Revival. So we never had to worry about fitting into a white context. So I was raised in a very bilingual setting in the church, so my pastor was actually my paternal uncle, Tomas Ramirez, who was quite bilingual. He had been born in the States of Guanajuato immigrant parents and a Korean uh, World War II uh, veteran, and he went smoothly between both languages as he preached and as he ministered. And our Sunday school was mostly in English for my generation, Uh, but I never realized I was speaking Spanglish or hearing Spanglish. So when I went into kindergarten, uh, I had the amazing blessing of having a Latina teacher who greeted me. Her first words out of her mouth were, mijo. And to hear that in this strange place was just the most uh, ingratiating, welcoming thing to have you know somebody embrace you like that. Uh, but then I was puzzled at my peers' deficiency because they didn't know what a trapo was or a cajon was. So I would use these words, not knowing they were Spanish, in a sentence, pass me the trapo and put it in the cajon. And they seemed so like, uh, clueless. <laughs> It's a trapo, it's a cajon. Little did I realize they were Spanish words. But I think that really uh, set me up for, uh, as opposed to a sense of deficiency, it was an extra thing I had, you know, a linguistic toolkit uh, I had going in. So that 
I'd say that congregation did all the things that you described, Monty, uh, the recitation of scripture, the singing. As soon as you showed an ounce of leadership, you were given a task, and that really carried over later on into the wider in, into the wider world. Um, and also, I think uh, the church um, inoculated me against the toxins of the barrio mm-hmm. and only filtered through the sweet uh, parts of the culture. Uh, so I have very fond memories of it, uh, and it served me in much later uh, later in life with episodes. Just one last thing. Uh, a previous pastor, Hermano Cantu, uh, sold my father an encyclopedia contract. And so we had a TV taboo, by the way. We didn't have TVs. That's how conservative we were. But uh, that encyclopedia set opened the world to me and to my siblings, and we read it voraciously. And so the literacy that was inculcated in us uh, was another part of our toolkit to go into the wider world. Danny, you mentioned that um, some of these things you were practicing at church then later on spilled out into your practice now as an adult. What are some of the things that you see that you've carried over throughout the years? I think the homiletical and rhetorical styles that I saw in the pulpit carried over into high school uh, speech and debate. And that became my ticket to to uh, college uh, later on in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, being in front of a, of an audience, I wasn't tongue-tied because I had seen my tios and my dad and right. my older siblings <laughs> all be led by the Spirit, you know, to communicate. We heard three to, yeah. or four sermons a week. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Uh, so I, I think that uh, that was empowering and then certainly seeing just organization, uh, organic organization by a community. Never, I never felt disempowered. If I, anything, meeting the wider society, I felt angry. Uh, but uh, this community had commissioned me as it, as I, I heard in Bible story that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were commissioned by their distant parents in Palestine to assume leadership in Babylon. And that was just part of the paradigm that we had, we had been uh, raised with. And Matia kept seeing you saying, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, had, I think experience? I had <laughs> similar experiences in terms of where the churches were that my parents were ministering was mm-hmm. in Barrios in Venezuela, very poor context, in a city that's a border town, but in Venezuela, Colombia. So in terms of the bringing experiences from different churches together, but also I think the age dynamic is different in Latin America and perhaps in Latinx churches too, mm-hmm. where... Adolescents are considered responsible, fully able uh, people, not children. Mm -hmm. Children are the little ones, and the adolescents and the adults are all taking care of the children, and everybody is in a cooperative mode doing church. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, you know, was a very different experience. And instead of angry, I felt more shocked when I came to the U.S. of how sort of lacking the general culture was, not just the church, in in activities for youth, uh, places to go, there was a sense of lack of trust, um, right, in the children that they were somehow so unaware of the world that they were going to get in trouble. And so mm-hmm. there were curfews and only you could only go to movies and you could only do that kind of thing. It felt so rather than I think the responsibilities that were given at a very early age to the people I grew up watching. So my reaction was in my high school, I joined the debate club as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, I need to be trained to, to do this in public. I thought I was going to be a human rights lawyer. So mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. I know that if I entered debate club, I could become a better lawyer or speaker and that I had 
grown up hearing my grandfather uh, give sermons for three hours. My father was trained in the U.S., so his sermons were a little shorter in a different organization, but still um, people of both lay and trained pastors had sermons that they already knew because they would sort of talk it out with mm -hmm. people and would you know look at scripture mm -hmm. and go back and forth. So you could get up at any moment and have ideas about this to share mm -hmm. with a community. And also, my childhood was marked by the greatest homiletician of all, Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. There was a photo of him in my Theo's pastor's office. Oh, okay. And I remember the morning, and my mother woke me up to tell me he had been assassinated. Wow. And it was a crushing, crushing event in my life. And so my debate, the experience, was to become the next, the, the Chicano Martin Luther King Jr. Right. <laughs> Which didn't happen. So but that, or he was, but that was the yeah. oratory was important. Yeah. Absolutely. Because yeah. we watched it growing up. Mm -hmm. Right. And we saw those examples, right? Those tangible examples of leaders and how they were exercising um, their, their skills within the church. I, I, for me, it was that experience as well where, so we migrated from Mexico to the United States when I was about nine years old. And that's when life changed for me completely. Because um, coming from middle class, career parents, to then going to the United States and just assuming that because I don't speak the language, then I must be ignorant, right? And so being used to always, and also my strong personality, to be in charge and then to like go to school and be told like you just sit there and don't say anything because you don't know the language, that was very frustrating. And yet the the congregation, the church became the place where I could like fully be myself because there was no problems there. We were in a, a Latino congregation where the majority of the hermanos were like third, fourth generation uh, Latinos. So their Spanish and their English was just like you were saying, Danny, like that Spanglish. We didn't understand half of what they're saying most of the time because they're like La Troca. And we're like, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but, um, but then they knew like they I think because a lot of our congregations are smaller and we see ourselves as a family, then it's easier, right, for us to not be so rigid and say, oh, you know what, uh, you know, one of the hermanas who was a Sunday school teacher, she approached me and she said, I see in you that, like, you like to organize, you like to be with people. Um, I think you can start helping me in the Sunday school with the kids. And so we would get together on Saturdays and she would start um, showing me the the book for the Sunday school class, which was like from Lifeway, and those were like very long lesson plans. And she taught me how to navigate it to where we could uh, have the lesson, but then also do some illustrations. And that was the cycle where she was mentoring me. And we would get together on Saturday, we would prepare, then we would come to church, and we would be with the children during Sunday school. And then eventually it grew to where uh, while the worship service was going on, I was uh, teaching the like four, five, six-year-olds um, so that they could have something more uh, age-appropriate. And, and so those were the first seeds that she planted, uh, which like the two of you, I grew up with that where we constantly saw examples, right, of men and women exercising leadership, speaking, and um, handling everything in the church and mm -hmm. just kind of taking charge. In, we see that constantly, and so we're like, okay, well, I, I can do this, right, as an adult. And that has spilled over to where now, I wish she was still alive, so I could tell her, it's like, it's because of that early training that now I'm teaching at seminaries, I'm doing uh, training sessions for pastors and leaders, and it just has continued to grow because of those small seeds that she planted. But you know what, mentorship for me was not just in the Latino church. Mm. 
because once I was in a Presbyterian context in the U.S., um, some of that spilled out to a more ecumenical space where because of the what was happening in Central America, I became part of a group called Clergy and Lady Concerned. And there were pastors and priests and nuns and people from all different denominations. And they too recognized that I had had some, some different kind of upbringing, that I was ready to take on responsibility. And so um, I was invited to my first protest by a Presbyterian pastor where from First Presbyterian Church in Nashville we led a march when Oscar Romero was assassinated. That same group, um, you know, Las Monjitas, they would, they would quote scripture about how youth, right, are from, from young on have sort of, if you use the words that God puts in your mouth, you can be a leader, right? And, and so always sort of commending the fact that I was a youth mm. uh, leader. And so I think that it, that upbringing, then others could see it. I think mm-hmm. really that difference between how you expect people to behave and how you then expect them to somehow transform sure. miraculously from being children to being fully grown mm-hmm. adults. And that very same group invited me through mentoring to then become a translator um, in different churches when people were moving through from Central America mm-hmm. on. And they just trusted me. So all of a sudden it wasn't just that I could preach or that I could teach or that I could sing, but that I had the, my superpower was that I was bilingual, right? Yeah. So they appreciated yeah. that and I could do translation. And I was then hired to go with the first um, observation group to Nicaragua. Mm. It was church groups to observe how the churches were being affected by a political change and what mm-hmm. was happening with human rights and all this. And I was their translator. They hired me as a translator and mm-hmm. uh, interpreter. Mm-hmm. So my other skills outside of church became important. Too. Sure. I was seen as a full person. So I think this idea of mentorship, where you can see someone and then how that spells, because now you see yourself that way too. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. and others can recognize that. And outside. it affected not only your work within the church, but then also civic involvement and social justice. Which has impacted and, yeah. what I studied later on. I got a PhD mm. in social ethics and what I teach and how I mm. see social issues being very much a part of why we're called to be church leaders. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think this is where our paths diverge, Mati. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you had the wider Presbyterian world with its long history of civic engagement since uh, the founding years. And ecumenism. Uh, Right, Mm -hmm. Uh, to insert yourself into. Whereas um, our counterparts were a different social class. White Pentecostals were marginalized given the history of California. They were Oki, Arky, Texan, uh, labor migrants who were just moving across the tracks. And certainly inserting Mexican-Americans into that context then resulted in many of us accepting the ideology and then the uh, lack of uh, overt social commitment that you'll find in the main line. And so uh, that was a little discomforting. And But in terms of church activity and leadership, uh, I had no problem uh, accepting it in high school. So we switched from our denomination to a white counterpart, a much larger white counterpart denomination when we moved from Southern California to Northern California because my older siblings were enrolled in that church's Bible college. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I uh, intuited that my experience would be better had I, if I went to the public school and not to the church's parochial school, which was not accredited. Fast forward four years, I've been a debate club president, 
part of the homecoming court, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't go to proms, couldn't go to proms. Uh, and I have letters of admission from Stanford and Yale in hand, and I took them to my white pastor for counsel and was told that neither one of those schools would be a place for a Christian to go. And the Bible college was the only option if you wanted a future in the church. Mm-hmm. What saved me at that moment was that childhood in the Latino apostolic church mm-hmm. with uncles who were now bishops, mm-hmm. grandmothers who had been pioneers. And I knew I had the right to a second opinion. So I called my tios. I called a couple of their peers who were veteran pastors in the apostolic church. And all of these men now in their 50s and 60s said to me, God is opening doors like that for us. You go with our blessing and bring back those skills and the gold of the Egyptians for our people. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I got that advice. I took the advice. I, when I informed my pastor, I was headed off to uh, 3,000 miles away to Connecticut. Uh, his response was that he would have to uh, lay me on the altar, which is Pentecostal speak for I wash my hands of the whole disastrous affair. And God will not hold me responsible on that day. So there I was, 17 years old, going to this uh, very foreign place called Yale uh, with no pastoral support. However, when I returned home for vacations, I made a beeline to these apostolic churches throughout Southern California, and they'd invite me to come and speak. They'd raise love offerings. They'd pray for me. And so that, that uh, inoculation it continued, that protection continued, that commissioning continued because of this ostensibly more backwards Latino Pentecostal setting, but in fact they had the vision, as did, I've not since learned, the black church had the sure. vision yes, to, yes. to uh, plan forward, you know, ahead. And uh, so uh, so the wider, again, the wider, whiter world uh, wasn't as embracing at that point, but it was that narrow uh, niche of American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, of course, once my career took off, um, I've, I've had uh, nothing but you know great experiences interacting with the wider with the wider world. And I think that's a lot of what happens, right, in these leadership journeys. We see times when we're affirmed and we're mm-hmm. even given wings to go spread further. And there's times like what you were experiencing, Danny, that it was almost like that holdback, right? It's like you were mm-hmm. having this great opportunity to mm-hmm. go to Yale. And it was viewed as a threat, rather. As in, and that's where, for, for us as leaders and pastors in the church, right, to have that wisdom, to be able to see how do we start guiding young people and opening doors for them and also being careful not to close them. I remember an experience I had when I was in college. And so I moved back from the United States to go to college in Mexico City. And here I am having exercised all this leadership in the church and then in, in the, my, my parents being pastors. And so being aware of these things and and wanting to serve and then I get to the church uh, here in Mexico City and after a few months I start seeing what the ministries are and so I approach the leadership and say hey I would like to serve where can I be useful where and their response was well we you need to wait for about two years so that we can get to know you and get to know your testimony before we can even consider uh, letting you get involved with anything and I get their point, but at the same time, like when you're 19 years old and you're eager and you want to serve in what you hear, actually, sorry, I was in 19, I graduated in 19, I, I was there around 15 years old. So I was like 15, 16, eager to serve, to give back and to be told like, 
wait a couple of years for a young person. A couple of years, like that's forever, right? <laughs> and and the I the revolution think, might be over. Right. By then. It's like and so I think uh, to be careful, right? So yeah, we know we we gotta get to know people. Everybody comes in and out, but at the same time to say, well, okay, but how how about we start gradually, right? And we can do like this process where we get to know you, you get to know us. And, and so to just have the wisdom to see that any person that comes up and, and is also wanting to get involved, how can we affirm their their um, their willingness right, I'm to be part of it? I'm wondering if some of this is an issue of trust and an issue of control, right? Because when you are a leader in church and maybe you don't have the opportunity to go to off to an Ivy League or to move back and forth, but that is your niche. That's where you're a leader. To see others coming up, rather than trusting God and putting people in God's hands, you're like, no, nope, they need to stay within the bounds, and this is the space where I'm comfortable. And it may be a very unconscious thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that age group moving from early adolescence into that college age is where churches, Protestant churches in general, tend to lose people. And that whole college age is where people like don't feel affirmed. Quite often because people move to another space, they're moving um, to a different country or a different city. Even in the old school where you would stay at home and go to school, you're now in a different world. Mm -hmm. And somehow not having that support um, can be very detrimental. Um, for me, because I had had that social outreach aspect of ministry that's how where I put myself back into and by the time I was done with college I ended up doing two years of mission work with my oh. church as in a program that was almost like a volunteer it was called diaconal service and I was able to go back to Latin America and work in the churches this time just sent to somebody who would accompany mm. without a major responsibility but to walk with and to learn through what people were doing there. And that was sort of, I think, that gradual space that you're talking mm -hmm. about, where I was trusted enough, I was a representative of the church, and all that I was told I was supposed to be doing was be in relationship with people. Just they trusted enough that I knew enough of what mm -hmm. it meant to be a Christian and to trust that what they were doing there, right, mm -hmm. in the congregations I worked in, three different congregations in one seminary in a matter of two years in two mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. And I went there recently married we went together and my non-spanish speaking husband learned spanish hmm. in those two years so the church again became the space where we could be seen as maybe not the, the adults in um in charge but we would be seen as people who are being mentored as leaders and an asset right, to the work that is, that is being done and being intentional and in, in even these gradual so in situations like the one you described, Elizabeth, mm -hmm. I think it behooves the uh, the religious community to uh, keep in mind its own scriptures. There have always been believers who have never been in the congregation per se, but are connected. When when Paul signs off to the saints in, in Philippi, he says, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. These are admonos who didn't belong to a congregation. They were, they were under the radar in Caesar's household. Uh, but yet organically connected to the believers in, in Philippi. Uh, Daniel and the Hebrew children in Babylon did not have a synagogue to go go to. There weren't synagogues by then, perhaps. But nevertheless, they were on their own in a very foreign place, but managed to, to form a community and to impact 
a broad society. So I think that broader vision of the church's impact in society would uh, equip people who are being are hitting a glass ceiling uh, to think about other ways of ministry beyond the four walls of the congregation, beyond the control. Often it's a patriarchal control uh, of, of, a, of a church and to exercise ministry out there. So I was very fortunate when I came back to California after college to end up in two apostolic congregations heavily undocumented, uh, mm-hmm. uh, highly undocumented uh, rates of, in, in the congregation, Oakland, and then East Palo Alto. And in East Palo Alto, the pastor gave me a green light, now as a Stanford administrator, to bring every possible resource, again, El Oro de los Egipcios, mm-hmm. uh, to the c- congregation in East Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. And we, had, we developed uh, something called Higher, um, higher Calling, and we, uh, if you were a Latino prof at Stanford, I found you and I dragged you to come and speak. Administrator, student, university uh, uh, type of students also mm-hmm. came and spoke. And so we, and we had gotten great traction within the broader denomination of turning the discourse around so to the point that no child would hear an anti-intellectual sermon mm-hmm. in an apostolic pulpit. But then we were slammed in 1994 with Proposition 187. Pete Wilson seeking re-election as governor latched on to this anti-immigrant uh, proposal that would kick uh, undocumented kids out of school, K-12, through and would deny a maternal aid to uh, undocumented expectant mothers. It was harsh, yeah. and we organized our hearts out. We, we marched our feet off, but we lost the vote. At which point uh, I decided my best revenge on Pete Wilson and people like him would be to ensure that all the mojaditos, all the undocumented kids in my congregation got to college. Mm -hmm. And uh, I left for graduate school a couple of years later, and by that point we had about 30 of our young people in college tracks. It was, a, it was a congregational effort. It wasn't it wasn't me uh, alone. But uh, there uh, I appreciated uh, my having one foot in this university setting, mm-hmm. one foot in the congregation, and being that interlocutor, that bridge. Mm-hmm. That was my role uh, to play uh, at that time. And now uh, these, these uh, kids are, are flourishing adults and in amazing places. One of them became the president of the school board of uh, East Palo Alto. There you go. <laughs> See, that's that's I, precisely I, what I we want to continue. I hear this... this um, call to remember these examples in scripture sure. of mm-hmm. people who sort of under the radar have been commissioned and blessed by their communities and to trust that there will be people receiving. I also want to commend the all those who always in that space of loneliness remember that God does work in mysterious ways mm-hmm. and that even calls the most un- usual people to the most unusual spaces and so when you're alone mm-hmm. and you're hearing that bush uh, speaking to you or you you can write your welcoming angels that you don't recognize to learn to trust that that mm-hmm. once we've placed those seeds there and we've taught people that responsibility we've also taught them to trust so i think mm-hmm. that um that you know knowing these characters that appear personajes f- from scripture also learning about all the different ways in which God is there mm-hmm. um, to receive us and to guide us. And one particularly relevant passage for me for ethnic and immigrant congregations is the one about the talents, the, the three serpents with the talents, mm-hmm. right? And the, the, the one who is fearful and just hides the, 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 the talent uh, is called to account uh, in the mm-hmm. story. And I think often uh, we are so fearful of our circumstances and we're hunkering down in times like these. In fact, we should be employing strategies mm-hmm. to multiply our talents uh, mm-hmm. over the long term. And that's what I was thinking of the Moses story, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I stutter. 
right? Yeah. I'm I'm speaking like you you understood that it was your superpower, but for mm -hmm. many it's taught that actually because you don't speak you need to be quiet mm -hmm. um, or because you speak in Spanglish or because you mm -hmm. don't have An sort accent. of visibility in in the in the general culture but that indeed may be mm -hmm. your gift and mm -hmm. there will be others who can help you through through the way so just to trust I think is mm -hmm. is the message because I was taught responsibility and I was seen I was also taught to trust mm -hmm. yeah. to quote another uh, biblical character El Chavo no contaron con mi astucia. Ay, exacto. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, the astucia and that support that we get from our congregations, right? Because we tend to be more of a family knit. Mm -hmm. and, and, to, and so I wanted to encourage our leaders to continue thinking of themselves in, in that manner. And so, Mati, uh, Dan, I appreciate that we have this space because I, right now I'm like, oh, we need to do like part two and part three. <laughs> we need to start talking about like higher education and the pipeline and how our churches are helping. But, you know, but today, just thank you for sharing your journeys and experiences of that early leadership um, development and how the church was that place that nurtured and polished your leadership skills and gave you agency and some um, examples of leaders and how to look look into what they were doing. And so to our listeners, just want to encourage you to keep thinking about this and see where are some ways in which you can encourage and mentor the young people in your church in their leadership development. How can you be intentional about these ways? You heard some examples from us today, and uh, what are some of the hands-on experiences they can be involved in? You know, is it in the music, is it teaching? Just uh, having those efforts that you do today, know that they're going to bring forth the fruit in developing leaders to carry forward the work for the church. And so thank you for being with us today. Uh, hasta la próxima. Gracias. 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 Gracias.